It was New Year's Eve 2019 when health officials in China admitted they had a problem. The health authorities have activated the most serious response level after an outbreak of a new type of viral pneumonia in central China. A rapidly growing number of people were developing a dry cough and fever before getting pneumonia. And for some, it turned fatal. Doctors have named the disease COVID-19, or Coronavirus Disease 2019, indicating that a type of virus is causing the illness. When they tried to trace its origin, they found a likely source. This food market in Wuhan. Out of the first 41 patients, 27 had been here. It wasn't conclusive evidence, but Chinese officials quickly shut down the market. They had seen this happen before, at a place just like this. The health officials are trying to get a grip on an alarming outbreak of SARS. The virus originated in mainland China. It spread across the country. The disease had been festering for months in southern China. In 2002, a coronavirus had emerged at a very similar market in southern China. It eventually reached 29 countries and killed nearly 800 people. Now, 18 years later, this coronavirus is in at least 71 countries and has already killed over 3,100 people. Hello and welcome to this week's Code Triage version of the Medspiration podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nav Badesha, and today we'll be discussing the first case of the 2019 novel coronavirus in the United States. On January 19th, 2020, a 35-year-old man presented to an urgent care clinic in Snohomish County, Washington, with a four-day history of cough and subjective fever. On checking into the clinic, the patient put on a mask in the waiting room. After waiting approximately 20 minutes, he was taken into an examination room and underwent evaluation by a provider. He disclosed that he had returned to Washington State on January 15th after traveling to visit family in Wuhan, China. The patient stated that he had seen a health alert from the CDC about the novel coronavirus outbreak in China and because of his symptoms and recent travel, decided to see a healthcare provider. Apart from a history of hypertriglyceridemia, the patient was an otherwise healthy non-smoker. The physical exam revealed a body temperature of 37.2 Celsius, a blood pressure of 134 over 87, and a pulse of 110 beats per minute. Respiration rate was 16, and O2 saturation was 96 while the patient was breathing on ambient air. Lung auscultation revealed ronchi, and chest radiography was performed, which was reported as showing no abnormalities. A rapid nucleic acid amplification test for influenza A and B were negative. A nasopharyngeal swab specimen was obtained and sent for detection of viral respiratory pathogens. This was reported back within 48 hours as negative for all pathogens tested, including influenza A and B, parainfluenza, RSV, rhinovirus, adenovirus, and four common coronavirus strains known to cause illness in humans. Given the patient's travel history, the local and state health departments were immediately notified. Together with the urgent care clinician, the Washington Department of Health notified the CDC Emergency Operations Center. Although the patient reported he had not spent time at the seafood market and reported no known contact with ill persons while he traveled to China, CDC staff concurred with the need to test the patient for 2019 coronavirus on the basis of the current CDC's person under investigation case definitions. Specimens were collected in accordance to the CDC guidance and included serum and nasopharyngeal and oropharyngeal swab specimens. 
After specimens were collected, the patient was discharged to home isolation with active monitoring by local health department. On January 20, 2020, the CDC confirmed that the patient's nasopharyngeal and oropharyngeal swabs tested positive for 2019 coronavirus by real-time reverse transcriptase PCR in coordination with CDC, subject matter experts, state and local health officials, emergency medical services, and hospital leadership and staff, the patient was admitted with airborne isolation precautions at Province Regional Medical Center for clinical observation with healthcare workers following CDC recommendations for contact, droplet, and airborne precautions with eye protection. On admission, the patient reported persistent dry cough and a two-day history of nausea and vomiting. He reported that he had shortness of breath and chest pain. Vital signs were within normal ranges. On physical examination, the patient was found to have dry mucous membranes. The remainder of the exam was generally unremarkable. After admission, the patient was receiving supportive care, including two liters of normal saline and Zofran for nausea. On days two through five of hospitalization, which were days six through nine of illness, the patient's vital signs remained largely stable, apart from the development of intermittent fevers accompanied by periods of racing heart rate. The patient continued to report a non-productive cough and appeared fatigued. On the afternoon of day two, the patient passed a loose bowel movement and reported abdominal discomfort. A second episode of loose bowels were recorded overnight and a sample of the stool was collected for PCR testing, along with additional respiratory specimen, nasopharyngeal and oropharyngeal swabs, and serum tests. The stool and both respiratory specimens later tested positive for the 2019 coronavirus, whereas the serum remained negative. This gave rise to the suspicion that coronavirus could potentially be spread through fecal-oral transmission. Treatment during this time was largely supportive. For symptom management, the patient received as-needed acetaminophen every four hours and 600 milligrams of ibuprofen every six hours. He also received 600 milligrams of guanfacine for his continued cough and approximately six liters of normal saline over the first six days of hospitalization. The nature of the patient's isolation unit permitted only point-of-care laboratory testing initially. Complete blood counts and serum chemical studies were available starting on day three of hospitalization. Lab results on hospitals day three to five, which were illness day seven to nine, reflected leukopenia, which is common in viral infections, mild thrombocytopenia, and elevated levels of creatinine kinase. In addition, there were alterations in hepatic function measures, including alkaline phosphatase of 68, an ALT of 105, and an AST of 77, which is your liver function test, and an LDH of 465. They were all elevated by day five of hospitalization. Given the patient's recurrent fevers, blood cultures were obtained on day four, and they have shown no growth to date. Now, we have heard from multiple physicians who have been treating coronavirus in ICUs across America that it is common to see AST and ALT elevation and ALKFAS elevation in patients consistent with some type of liver damage. It's usually in the 70 to 100 range with no fulminant hepatitis. Notably in small samples, higher transaminitis at admission ranging from 150 to 200 correlates with clinical deterioration and progression to acute respiratory distress syndrome. Acute kidney injury has been noted with a creatinine less than two usually. It's uncertain whether direct viral effect is related to that, but notably, SARS-S2 
RNA fragments have been identified in liver, kidney, heart, and blood. A second chest x-ray from the night of hospital day 5, or illness day 9, showed evidence of pneumonia in the right lower lobe of the left lung. These radiographic findings coincided with the change in respiratory status starting on the evening of day 5, when the patient's oxygen saturation values measured by pulse oximetry dropped to as low as 90% while he was breathing on room air. On day 6, the patient was started on supplemental oxygen delivered by nasal cannula at 2 liters per minute. Given the changing clinical presentation and concern of hospital-acquired pneumonia, treatment with vancomycin, a 75-50 milligram loading dose followed by 1 gram administration IV every 8 hours, and cefepime administered IV every 8 hours was initiated. On hospital day 6, illness day 10, a fourth chest x-ray showed bacillar streaky opacities in both lungs, a finding consistent with atypical pneumonia, and rails were noted on both lungs on auscultation. Given these findings, treatment with intravenous remdesivir, a novel nucleotide analog prodrug in development, was initiated on the evening of day 7, and no adverse events were observed in association with infusion. Vancomycin was discontinued on the evening of day 7, and cefepime was discontinued on the following day after serial negative procalcitonin levels and negative nasal PCR testing for MRSA. On day 8, or illness day 12, the patient's clinical condition improved, supplemental oxygen was discontinued, and his oxygen saturation values improved to 94 to 96 while he was breathing on room air. The previous bilateral lower lobe rails were no longer present, his appetite improved, and he was asymptomatic aside from intermittent dry coughing and rhinorrhea. As of January 30th, 2020, the patient had remained hospitalized, he was afebrile, and all symptoms had resolved with the exception of the cough. The medspiration here is that this patient survived but that hasn't been the case for many individuals all across the world. So here are some basic housekeeping rules and some discoveries we've made so far. There are very few absolutes about the COVID-19 at this time, but as of 10 a.m. on March 15th, 2020, according to Johns Hopkins University, we know that there are 156,400 confirmed cases in the world, a total of 5,833 deaths have occurred, and there have been over 74,000 recoveries at this time. 2,952 total cases have been diagnosed in the United States. We know that that's largely underreported due to testing kit availability in hospitals at this time. We know that COVID-19 shares 79.5% of the genetic sequence with the SARS coronavirus of the early 2000s. This was the Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome virus, and it also shares the same cell entry receptor as SARS did, which is the ACE2 or the angiotensin-converting enzyme 2 receptor, which is located in the lungs. One of the most important terms when discussing the spread of pathogens in the human population is the r naught. The r naught is how many people one person can infect. It's the basic reproductive number of any bug that we talk about. So for example, a virus with an r naught of two would mean that one person would go on to infect two people, two people would go on to infect four people, which would go on to infect 16 people, which would go on to infect 256 people, going to 65,536, straight into the billions. 
Now, the World Health Organization estimates that the COVID-19 has an R naught of 1.4 to 2.5. Jonathan of Lancaster University in England and colleagues predicts that the R naught is 3.6 to 4. And the Journal of the American Medical Association predicts that the R naught of the coronavirus is 2.6 at this time, and that was on February 5th of 2020. And just for comparison, measles had an R naught of 12 to 18, diphtheria had an R naught of 6 to 7, smallpox 5 to 7, polio 5 to 7, HIV 2 to 5, SARS 2 to 5, Ebola. 1.5 to 2.5, and the flu generally around 2 to 3. So how is this thing spreading? Person-to-person -person spread via aerosolized respiratory droplets is thought to be the way that it's spreading. This means the inhalation of infectious particles that are suspended in the air can be breathed in by family members, healthcare providers, and anybody you're around. COVID has not yet been declared an airborne virus, which means a pathogen can remain suspended in the air for very long periods of time. It is unknown whether body fluids can infect others, and it is believed that the virus can live on surfaces longer than the average virus. Researchers have found that COVID remains virulent on surfaces for lengthy periods of time, from up to 24 hours on cardboard and up to two to three days on plastic and stainless steel. It remains viable in aerosols attached to particles that stay aloft in the air for up to three hours, and that's all basically in line with the stability of the SARS virus. Spread from person to person with these viruses happens most frequently among close contacts. That's why it's recommended staying about six feet away from other individuals. Preventing spread has become very, very important. And we know that diligently washing your hands for 20 to 30 seconds, particularly after touching surfaces in public areas, is very useful. Use of hand sanitizer that contains at least 60% alcohol is a reasonable alternative if the hands are not visibly dirty. Respiratory hygiene has become more important than ever, and that means covering up when you cough or sneeze, avoiding touching your face, in particular the eyes, nose, or mouth, and avoiding crowds, particularly in poor ventilated spaces, if possible, and avoiding close contacts with ill individuals. It's also been shown that cleaning and disinfecting objects and surfaces that are frequently touched can be helpful. The CDC has issued guidance on disinfection in the home setting, and a list is provided below. Incubation period for this virus is estimated to be 14 days following exposure. In a family cluster of infections, the onset of fever and respiratory symptoms occurred approximately three to six days after presumptive exposure. It's unclear when transmission begins, whether it's before onset of symptoms and whether you'll see asymptomatic carriers, which is believed to be true. Clinical features, the illness is characterized primarily by fever, cough, shortness of breath, and bilateral infiltrates on chest imaging. Cohort studies of initial cases identified in the outbreak have shown 73% were male, Median age was around 49. The interquartile range is 41 to 58 years. 98% of individuals present with fever, 76% with cough, myalgias and fatigue in 44%. Shortness of breath and dyspnea developed in 55% of individuals after a median of eight days of illness. Lymphopenia is common. 
with 30% of them going into acute respiratory distress syndrome and 10% needing mechanical ventilation. Of the confirmed cases, it seems that about 80% have mild symptoms, 14% of people infected have severe symptoms, and 5% end up with critical symptoms like respiratory failure, shock, and multi-organ dysfunction. This has been a clinical snapshot of the first case report that was published on COVID-19 in the United States of America. We will be providing a list of resources that you can read and learn more about below. My recommendation to everyone out there is to stay vigilant and to pay attention to any updates that the CDC gives. I know myself as a physician, we just had our first confirmed case of coronavirus at the hospital that I'm currently working at. So it's going to be very important that we stay vigilant and that we take the proper precautions at this time. I'm looking forward to giving you guys more updates as time progresses. Thank you, guys. There you have it, folks. I hope you guys left this one feeling med-fired. If you learned something new or if you genuinely enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and rate it five stars. Medspiration is a 501c3 nonprofit charity organization. The more you help us grow, the more people we're able to help. Let's make a commitment together, guys, and attempt to live a healthier lifestyle, mentally, physically, and spiritually. And as always, you know what time it is. It's time to get out there and do something med-spiring.